0: G'day and welcome to the Hunting Connection Podcast. My name is Zach Williams and I am your host. Here we'll connect you with hunters, fishers and outdoor enthusiasts from around the globe. This podcast will share hunting and fishing stories including past experiences and tackle the tough hunting stereotypes our community faces. We hope to be a positive influence to those outside the community while also having a laugh along the way. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Get and welcome to another episode of Hunting Connection podcast. Tonight we have a very exciting guest on tonight. Um, someone that's been requested a few times through the socials and in person. While I was over in New Zealand when I was uh, speaking to Jürgen, um, asking who who re- who I reckon he should uh, who I should have on. Um, and this name's come up quite a bit. Sam the Trap Man, how are you going?
1: Loving the dreams, Eck. How are you doing, pal? Yeah,
0: good, mate. Good, good. What have you been up to, mate?
1: Oh, fella, we've been up to a whole bunch of things. We've uh, this last week we've been involved in uh, translocating kakapo, our big, fat, flightless uh, parrots, up to the North Island. They uh, left the North Island of New Zealand about 40 years ago, and we've uh, we've just brought another four uh, lonely males as a test pilot into the North Island, and if they do well and eat enough food. We'll bring them some females a bit later. So that's what we've been doing last week. And other than that, just being a dad, doing a bit of winter foraging, and uh, got a couple of hunts lined up this next week. So living the dream.
0: Yeah, beautiful. So for people that don't know, I'm going to screw up the name. Is it Ka- Kākāpō?
1: Yeah, Kākāpō. Kākāpō. Yep. Um, got a long A on them, If you if you have a short A. Kaka means poo. <laughs> but uh, kaka means the, the parrots are kaka porny.
0: Yeah, I've got to screw it up. The amount of New Zealand town names I sc- I, I screwed up while I was over there.
1: <laughs> oh, I'm the same when them am in Aussie. Eh? I, you guys have got some really um some really unique names, and I think that's that's part of the beauty of, of, of coming to a different country. Yeah, hey, you just been to Pukit, eh? They must have some interesting names over there.
0: They do, but it's. Yeah, it's it. It doesn't have the same ring to you know some of the places in in New Zealand. Like, it, you look at it and it's pronounced how it's how it's spelt. You go to New Zealand and you got you got no idea, you know. <laughs> like I hear you. first time when I went up to Fungaday, I'm like, how the hell do I pronounce that?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, very different language, eh?
0: Oh, it's it, it's awesome. Um, so yeah, for, for people that don't know what that, that parrot is that you're speaking about, you want to just give them a quick rundown on that?
1: Yeah. So the kakapo is a really large flightless, um, parrot that it looks a lot like a Hogwarts, Hogwarts owl, a green Hogwarts owl, I reckon. <laughs> and they, uh, they cruise along on, on the forest floor and they climb up and they eat or they get fed on these little, uh little fruit that we call emu, and they eat torta, all of our native conifers, uh, our native podocarp species. And they, they love eating these delicious bush lollies, I call them, and they just get real fat, and and, uh, and they are very, very slow breeders. So they only breed once every five or six years. So they're a bit slack on the breeding front. I think you and I, Zach, are doing a way better job than the <laughs> just quietly, but, you know, they're pretty... They're pretty they're pretty neat little animals, just like a bit of a lazy monkey in the parrot world.
0: Yeah, they're they're pretty interesting looking. Um, I've seen your posts up uh, from the last couple of days of of them up, and yeah, they're they're a funk funky little animal, that's for sure. I heard they're pretty cheeky too. When they've
1: got the- a lot of personality, eh? They like to jump on you and give you cuddles, and yeah, if they if they know you've got a bit of tucker with you, they they definitely hunt you down.
0: <laughs> it seems that way with a, a few of the uh, new zealand bird species um uh, the name's escaping me but what's the alpine um parrots what a are... the kia the kia yeah I, I heard they're they're real nasty and they can be quite quite mischievous
1: they can be real mischievous hey eh? i did a did a few years trapping in the alpine down in Fiordland and the kia everywhere and so um I had one particular here that used to live like right next to the hut I was staying in and it would follow me around all day and I'd feed it all the old rotten bait and eggs out of my traps and, and it would um and and, and they the care learned so quickly, eh? So they started um to 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 uh, tear the polystyrene insulation out of my hut. So it was bloody freezing in those huts in winter and they even started to um, figure out how to open up our traps. So We're in a bit of an arms race over here at the moment, trying (laughs) to figure out ways to exclude kia from our traps. They're smart little guys, just like if you've seen that octopus kind of documentary. Yeah, they got that uh, that same personality, eh? Yeah, I I
0: was. I got told stories while I was over there hunting earlier this year of them. You know, just absolutely destroying hikers and backpackers. like camps, their tents, they'd, you know, go out for a day hike and come back and their tents torn to shreds and all the poles are chewed up. And um, one of the stories was uh, it was either a jacket or or some, some, some bit of camping or hunting equipment. It's picked it up and it would fly it up over the edge and drop it over the edge and then pick it back up, bring it back up, taunt the person and then fly it back over and just, yeah mischievous little things
1: (laughs) absolute larrikins eh? you you run into any when you're hunting tar
0: down this source unfortunately no so the guys that are hunting with they pushed on a little bit further and i stayed back to have a walk around with a bow while they were look off looking for some tar and they ran into a bunch of them but I, i sadly if i went with them i would have but uh yeah i sadly stayed behind and missed out on encountering them
1: just have to come back and give it another nudge, Jay. Eh? Oh
0: yeah, man! I got. I'm gonna get over there and go get myself a chamois and redeem myself on a seeker on the North Island. It's, that's that's a pretty sore spot, though. Seeker.
1: <laughs> oh mate, I haven't shot one. You say eh? they are an absolute bane of my life. Those sneaky little buggers. Oh, just the sound of
0: them roaring and he whoring through the through the bush down there is just insane.
1: For sure, for sure. Pretty magical country.
0: So, I think we've covered where, what country you're in, but whereabouts <laughs> actually are you from?
1: Well, I'm from Gisborne, uh, the Te Tairawhiti on the east coast of the North Island. Yep. Um, that's where both sides of my family's from. Um, you know, I had to get an import from outside the region because chances are most of the, the lovely people in our region we're related to. So, <laughs> it's a s- nice small town, um, proud as to call Te, Te Tairawhiti home and it's uh we've got everything up here we've got um got reds spallow, pigs for africa uh wild cattle population um and we've still got we've got we've sm- got a small seeker samba rusa herd and we've even got um wild emus
0: oh wow i've I, I knew about all the rest but emus i did not know that there was a another population of australians over there i know about the all the wallabies and all of that, you know, and the possums. I know how much uh, Kiwis love killing those possums.
1: <laughs> They're pretty cool creatures, your possums. are. I think we get them fatter than you guys do over there, though, eh?
0: Yeah, it depends where you go. A um, few of these places, feet, you know people feed them and stuff, but, um, yeah, it was uh, definitely an eye-opener when I went over there about six, seven years ago chasing seeker and just the guys that are with, every single possum that ran out, you know, they'd swerve, clean them up, pull over, pluck it, and I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> and, the, you know, they explained to me the whole the whole um, possum fur trade and uh, it just, it, like, he told me about the possum fur, but I, I didn't expect you to pluck it like a bird, you know, I was I was more thinking, you know, possum skins and fur, but yeah, plucking it just blew me away.
1: It's lovely soft fur, eh? and and we use a lot of wool over here, and man, it keeps you way warmer than normal wool, which is excellent, eh? So I appreciate you um you donating those uh <laughs> those little little uh ecological bloody bane's of my life. <laughs> yeah, the
0: the the um wool is fur, uh, warm, but um yeah the and ecological disaster over there that's for sure but yeah the you we sure love to um control them that's for sure
1: <laughs> yeah for sure by taking them out you know we just it, it creates a lot more for me it's great because for me i think like i'm a bit of a bushman so like eating food out of our environments is what i live for eh? whether that's meat or foraging our native fruits and and, and, and and vegetables as well so the possums eat a lot of those same fruit and those same trees and those same palatable uh, vegetables as well so for me if the less possums there are the more food there is for us i'm, I'm all about it
0: what have you tried eating one a possum yeah
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, I grew, I uh, did a few winters possum trapping, and you when you when you miss out on deer, possums just part of the menu. So, yeah, they're not too bad as long ha- as you get a young doe, you're alright. I reckon.
0: See, they're protected over here. We don't even get get the opportunity to you know try that type of type of stuff.
1: Well, interestingly, it's the same with our native species over here, right? So like all of our traditional hunted species such as ketadoo and, and kakapo we we're talking about before, they're all protected and and not abundant enough to be able to to harvest. So we don't eat a lot of those, but it's interesting that we're sitting over here eating uh Many, you know, many a species that's uh a tongue to many of your indigenous peoples as well, eh?
0: Yeah, especially with the um the wallabies over there as well, you know. I was I was hunting with a Kiwi and a couple of Americans and the Americans were, you know, going nuts over the wallabies. They couldn't give a shit about the tar. They just wanted to shoot a wallaby.
1: <laughs> well that's easy to achieve, eh?
0: Oh, we only seen the one and which, which was pretty, we went down to um, Camp Stream Hut was near where I took my tar, and that's where we, we found the wallaby for one of them to take. So, but yeah, I only found the one down there.
1: Amazing. Oh, if you were over, sing out. I'll be able to point you in the right direction up this way.
0: Yeah, I'll be keen to arrow a few because, you know, it's something we're not allowed to do here. You know, there's no, no hunting of native species with archery equipment, so... You know, you can right. get tags and that for kangaroos, for, you know, pest control. All of that's a, a weird sort of setup, how they do that here. Um, changes state to state. But, yeah, pretty much here you can get destruction tags where you shoot them and leave them. You're not allowed to touch them. Um, You've yeah, got, got another tag where you can use them on the property, but you're not allowed to take them off the property. And then another one where you can take them off the property. Um, right. But the okay. hardest one to get is the one to take them off the property.
1: Which is just really, ridiculous. that's interesting, eh? So is that, um, is that trying to deter people from from having a, a meat trade in, in, in native species?
0: Well, well, we do have a meat trade for the native species. Like you have to go do a course for it. It's all headshots, you know, male male animals. Um, but it's yeah. I've,
1: I've, I've been over and eating kangaroo over there and crocodile, and you, you guys have plenty of natives on the menu, right?
0: Yeah, we do. All the crocs are farm. Right. So all of that's farmed and then you've got professional roo shooters that go shoot for the, you know, the meat and the, uh, pet food markets. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a big rabbit hole. We definitely need to do something with our kangaroo populations. <laughs> you know, I went out this morning and I probably, probably four or 500 kangaroos I seen on this 1000 acre property. It's just yeah.
1: ridiculous. So we need to do the same about our deer over here. I felt like, um. I'm, I'm hunting a property later on this week, and it it's not unusual to see 300 reds in the morning. You know, you let a shot off, you shoot one, and 100 will run out of the out of the galley system. So, it's it's amazing with um with these 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 browsing species. We need to be able to manage them well. Otherwise, you know, we're going to lose our social license to hunt some at some point.
0: Yeah, it's it's such a such a touchy subject, you know. What you are saying there, you know, seeing that many reds, I can only dream of se- <laughs> seeing that. You know, being over in New Zealand when I was over there chasing tar, we were glassing this one bit of private property from where we were camped on the um on the riverbed, and we're glassing up a herd of bull tar, and then there's you know, fifteen, sixteen red red hinds, and then behind us there was a couple of fallow does feeding. And then, you know, a few days later, we've glassed the same hillside. The tar is still there. The hinds are still there. But then there's two red, uh, two stags chasing them, chasing them around. I'm like, this is incredible. You know, like people would in Australia would love to, you know, see deer like that on public land and privately. Yeah. But that's it's, what
1: I'm saying. Like, it's incredible until you're trying to farm. Yeah. It. And, you know, we're losing 12% of productivity to that, those kind of herd numbers and, it's uh it definitely eats into the bottom dollar in a meat industry that doesn't like venison's not worth anything over yeah. here at the moment so it's uh it's definitely uh hitting home for a lot of our farmers the uh the size of our deer herds and in, in some of our regions for sure
0: yeah well we've got the abundance over there no one no one in new zealand would want to pay for venison when you can you know just go out to Any bit of public land over there that's huntable and you can, you know, go shoot a couple, whatever you want, really, Um, which is just crazy. Like, we've got Victoria, which is similar to how you guys have it, but nowhere near as fantastic. Like, just your public land access over there is just next
1: level the axis is a really good setup eh the axis is a great setup we just need a generator but find a way of generating more dollars for for real um, real hands-on rigorous management
0: yeah you just need to get like americans t- seem to think new zealand you can only go over there and you know hunt these high fence farms which is amazing you know they can go over there and shoot these insane reds these insane fallow all of that type of thing but they don't realise that they can go over there and hunt the public land stuff as well if they they get all the right stuff sorted. You know, they don't... That's right.
1: And, and you know, we've got this beautiful high country in the South Island that holds some really great trophy potential. Uh, there's a lot of r- tuckers still in the that alpine zone amongst the tussock. But as soon as you get up here to where I live on the East Coast, we can't... You know, we'll, sh- we'll be shooting animals, and they will be all ribs. You know, uh, they're in such poor condition because the forest just is so chewed out yeah. by these red deer that they actually can't carry the number of deer that are in there. So there's no good trophy potentials. Everything's like scrubby sixes and eights, and if you're shooting a, a hind, chances are you're not going to have much of a backstake stake on there; they're just going to be depleted. So, it's a real fascinating thing because the deer herds are different in different areas, uh, depending on how much productivity that yeah. forest system or that alpine system's got. The trophy potential down south is incredible, whereas up here it's just chewed out and it's rubbish. So, we really need to um, we need to get on top of what what we're doing. Um, otherwise, we we're going to start running into some big problems.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that's the thing, you know, we're having stuff here with all the heli and stuff like that, but we'll circle back to all of that. You touched on it briefly. What do you do for work?
1: Uh, I'm a catchments coordinator. I'm a a bushman. So uh, coming up, uh, I came up as a trapper. I've been been, uh, trapping uh, commercially in the bush since I was 12, and I did a lot of stints in the conservation space uh, as a trapper and and now I work with landowners uh, on biodiversity and water quality, but to me that's working on these big projects. It's working uh, on large landscape uh, trapping projects. we trap our mustelids out. We've got stoats over here, Yep, and ferrets. And you know those birds we are talking about before? They haven't evolved with mammals, so they've got no natural defence mechanisms. So my job and end goal is really to set up big projects, uh, get people in place, uh, support our farmers with bringing back our, our native birds, uh, such as kiwi and and feel our blue ducks in the rivers and a whole bunch of these species that you guys will go, they're just bloody birds. But to, to us, that's all the natives we've really got. So, um, yeah, that's my job is I, I work in that biodiversity space with farmers, um, which is quite exciting now. I've got, you know, four trappers on the ground in projects now. We're looking after uh, around 45,000 hectares um, of on-farm trap projects now so it's pretty exciting
0: that's awesome but that's
1: what i do that's
0: that's something i'm pretty jealous of is how accessible it is to get one of those outdoorsy type bushman jobs over there you know um the guy that chris that i went and hunted um seeker with a few years back he was a trapper you know went around done all the all the stoats and rats and all of that the trap lines um and that was his job, you know, spending a week out bush, running all the trap lines, setting all the traps, and just like hearing, hearing it, and then going out um, to one of those areas and seeing what he actually does. I'm just like Jesus Christ, you like, you know. I, I could not keep up with him. I, I was the fittest I ever was then, and you know, when when we're in seeker country, we're walking into camp, and he's got a smoke in one hand, a drink in the other, and I still couldn't keep up with him. And he's <laughs> he's just plugging along. But after seeing how he go, goes through those mountains with you know traps and bait and all of that, doing all the grid lines, it was just insane. But yeah, just how accessible it is to get one of those outdoorsy jobs like Jürgen, who I went with this time. He's uh, he's he. Goes goes out you know he's a um, pest man does pest management goes around shooting all the pests on farmlands and you know they're doing a bunch of wallaby control and deer control and it's it's insane the amount of time you get to spend in the bush doing that type of stuff it's not really that accessible to do something like that over here in oz
1: yeah we live the absolute dream a fella we do a bit of work and go for a bit of a hunt or a fish after work and you know uh when you're living in in sort of backcountry huts with the rain on a tin roof there's nothing you know fire crackling away in the corner Sm- you're smoking trout up in the smoker that you just caught from the stream or a few and steaks on the on, on the in the pan it's it's not too bad you know and now I've got young kids my four-year-old's kicking around in the bush with me as well so now nah, we're pretty lucky i, I you know people go oh how did you how did you end up in that but well, i think you're right like in new zealand we're really lucky that we value it, having our people having um a real connection to the landscape and we really value uh, our outdoorsmen. so um yeah we're just real lucky hey eh? like far out i always thought thought when i was a kid i was like oh you know, we grow up on these stories of Barry Crump and the deer colors, and then we grow up and with these stories of those American um, trappers and bushmen over there, and go, "Wow, oh, wouldn't that be amazing?" And somehow we've uh, we've ended up be working in a sort of a more modern version of that. Now, I don't know how it happened, but if they keep paying my salary, I'm pretty happy. See, so, yeah,
0: Oz has it on some parts with some of the the animals. You know, we did have it. You know. 50 years ago like I grew up I got I got taught to hunt by my pop my dad's dad um you know I'd spend every fortnight at their house going off camping and fishing and full driving and I grew up hearing the stories of how he'd go shoot you know a hundred pair of rabbits and you know he'd make double triple what he had earned a week just by shooting rabbits and foxes and cats and you know for this for the skins and for the meat and all of that type of stuff. And we just don't really have that anymore. You know, you've got a few trap people that trap wild dogs and dingoes, um, cats, foxes, but it's not, not massive. Like it is, is over there. It's, you know, you've got, you know, Buffalo herders and, um, camel herders and stuff like that, that round all these things up. Goats is, a, a newer one, you know, the last 15 years, but that's more just property owners rounding up goats and sending them off to the abattoirs. It's not like spending time out in the bush like you fellas do over there, and just being one with the land and learning everything over there.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I see a few things on on TV or, or YouTube, and like some of those guys doing scrubbles up north and that over there. That looks that that looks like a a whole lot of fun, you know. But yeah, I think you're right. You know, as as with you, my grandfather taught me to hunt in the same places we hunt now, and um, it's we've got a bit of a different culture over here, you know, because um, we've got a uh, a lot of our a lot of our Bushman culture is really steeped in uh, Maori and, and 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 the practices of our our Indigenous peoples over here. So a lot of the f- of the way that I guess, you know, my, our whanau look at things, um, is that we see hunting and fishing as just a part of being part of the ecosystem. You know, it's no different to us than foraging, uh, our pickle, pickle, our little, uh, fern, fern fronds off of our ferns and no different to eating the fruit out of the bush or anything like that. It's just a part of living rather than a, um, some people call hunt, and I get it's good for everyone to look at things differently. Some people reckon hunting's a sport, or or some people reckon it's a recreational activity. To us, we've always been hunters, and I think we always will. And it doesn't really matter too much whether we talk about our Scottish ancestry, or Irish, or Polish, or or or, or Maori ancestry, or in your case, um, over there, Aboriginal ancestry. We've always been hunters, so it's just a real interesting thing for us. Is that um we've got to just man- manage and look after the landscapes we're in, and if we get to get to hunt and uh, get to fish and get to and the bush feeds us with all that bush tucker. It's a it's a good thing all round, eh?
0: Yeah, exactly. And that's that's something I don't feel that people look to hunters do, but other people don't. Like you know being from white heritage over here, you know, um, you, you get a lot of like, oh, it's okay for natives to hunt, but because you've got white ancestry, it's not okay for you to hunt. And it's like that hunting is my ancestry and lots of other people, you know, I've got German ancestry and English ancestry and, you know, like everyone in my, my heritage was, was hunters from, you know, the dawn of time. It's only (laughs) modern, modern day people that, that aren't you know so that's that's something that's really good to to focus in on is that you know we all came from from hunters and you know we're in a we may be in a different land but we're still hunting the same species you know all of those all of those species followed us over here
1: yeah well we 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 brought them over eh in the case of new zealand over here we we brought them over many of our ancestors uh, particularly our scottish ancestors went were were actually born in a class system where they were unable to hunt because we're just born through lowly yeah so you know it was reserved for the for the lords or the leads the people of gentry over in in scotland and uh deer weren't all, weren't part of what we could hunt and so as soon as they were introduced over here the populace um, took that up pretty solidly eh and um you know, I think our ancestors are probably like, wow, you guys are allowed to hunt red deer. That's pretty amazing.
0: Yeah. 365 so, um, yeah. days, 24 <laughs> seven.
1: That's right. Don't have to pay a fee to do it. Yeah. It's, it's not, it's not too bad.
0: I uh, explaining it to Americans and, and English and all of that. Like they just blown away of how the Australian and New Zealand system system goes
1: yeah it's pretty incredible hey eh? i did a stint in the uk and wow it just opened i did a couple of stints in america also but the uk blew my mind eh? because it's so class system orientated still you yeah. know and that was just scary you know to even be invited on a hunt you had to be like you know of of certain lineage and me rolling up in my stubbies and my woolen t-shirt just definitely didn't cut the mustard, <laughs> if you know what I mean.
0: Yeah, I just had some uh, a couple of Danish hunters on um, the podcast who I actually met down um, at, at Lake Pukaki when we were over hunting tar. We went down to see the statue, and a couple of guys hopped out a little rental decked out in 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 Sitka camo, and we're like. Uh, they're definitely not New Zealanders, so we'll go go say get a to them and find out what they're doing and what they're hunting and yeah. So went and chatted to them and got them on the podcast and chatting to them about hunting in Denmark. That was crazy. You have to pretty much do a uni degree to be able to hunt over there. That's I true. think think they're saying you got a, it's like a year course. You have to do like a five hundred question thing, but you're only allowed to get four or five questions wrong in the whole thing. Like, it's, it's insane.
1: The beauty of that, though, oh, is that they, hunters have a great understanding of their ecosystems. And I think, like, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but here in Aotearoa, um, a lot of our hunters are just starting to switch on to needing to understand their ecosystems. And a lot of the legislation over here is kind of creeping in front of us a little bit too fast. And so it's an interesting thing because we get into this whole hunter conservation space and we've got some incredible hunter-led um, conservation projects popping up. But I do like the European system not necessarily having to sit a degree to go hunting. That just seems a bit crazy. But I do like the focus on understanding ecosystems and the impacts of deer herds and pig herds and you know the impacts of our game species and where they sit and what the carrying capacity is in any given ecosystem because I feel like the more hunters that understand that, the more hunters can have conversations in a really articulated and educated way that can support hunting for the future because if we uh, if we kind of reside in that hunter hunter space, we just get raped over the coals, you know? There's, um, you know, we can turn up with a mullet and bloody big glasses and drinking Cody's or run till the, till the cows come home, but it just doesn't get us where we need to get to. And so I think the more e- e- eco-literacy we've got, the, um, the, the longer we're going to be able to hunt the way we want to hunt. So I'm a big fan of that European education space, but man, having to do three years to be able to hunt seems a bit crazy.
0: Yeah, it's 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 insane the way they do it. But like you said, they get an understanding straight off the bat that we don't. You know, they learn all the butchering, all the processing. They er, learn all the herd management. Um, what deer are good to take? What what deer you should leave? Like they've got seasons where they can take certain stags, where and then other seasons when they can take the cull stags, and then hinds and yearlings and like their understanding is just crazy but then you know you can't really put that for herd management you can put that in australia and new zealand but you know at the end of the day because they're an introduced species for the conservation side of things you know like the carrying capacity of the landscape is it Good to have have a managed population or is it good to have no populations you know it's a and that seems to be where our governments are turning you know as a hunter i want deer on the landscape but you know for conservation having no no deer on the landscape is better than having deer on the landscape
1: oh i yeah it's an interesting debate eh? and, and I, like i think i'm really different to many Many hunters in New Zealand. I, I, you know, to me, I'm like, I like the idea of having herds of of significance, um, and having areas that are designated for hunting. But I also like the idea of um, having areas that are managed for biodiversity, uh, and that may look like not having any deer in those areas, which will scare a few people, and even beyond that. You know, our people here in in Aotearoa have hunted since people have been here. And I've got no issue with growing um, our native uh, Kai species, our native hunted species, back to a place of abundance where they come back on the menu. You know, it's not going to be that long where we we actually could go from having, you know, to, to hunting deer in some areas or pigs in some areas to a place where actually we get back to hunting our native bird life again, and so that's something that's a space I'm really interested in. What, how do we get to a tapestry where we've got herds of native of 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 significance in some areas, and then we manage for biodiversity in other areas, and those biodiversity rich areas become areas that we can harvest our native foods from again. Do you think? And I think that's that's good for hunting all round because we're creating a greater diversity of hunting. We're actually creating a form of hunting that's unique in the world because no one else can come and hunt our native species because no one has our native species, right? And so, you know, we can offer these, as you mentioned, these high fence red deer stags and we can offer we can offer like tar, et cetera. But actually, those are things you can get elsewhere in the world. So I'm re- I'm really interested in a, a, in a diverse hunting space where, yeah, we might have areas that are managed for um, introduced species, but we also have areas that we can harvest our traditional species. I reckon that's what the future of hunting in New, New Zealand should look like.
0: Yeah, definitely. I, I think Australia should go down a similar route. Um, but do you think that, you know, with getting these, these native species to a point where you can hunt them do you think that you would ever be able to hunt them even if you get the numbers back there do you reckon that would ever be on the cards because you know you got the the greeny type parties who you know anti-hunting and you know i know there's a few of those groups popping up in and always have been in nz but they're you know popping up more and more
1: yeah i think so and i think I'm not sure what the tapestry like over there, but a lot of hunters are greenies over here and a lot of greenies are hunters. So that's, that's interesting. And a lot of rednecks are hunters too. And a lot of hunters are rednecks. So I think it's quite diverse in that space too. But I think the big thing is, um is really, you know, there's a real appetite because I um, put myself out on a limb there. Uh, our, the indigenous people over here have a really strong voice and are really highly recognized in our political system so the reality around legislative change to be able to harvest native species again is there whereas I don't know what the situation is over there you know so i think you know we've got a party in politics here that has a seat at the table called the maori party and you know they're pushing for indigenous rights really strongly and i think that's a great thing and it's a real asset to hunters because many of our hunters here are indigenous and so yeah i think i think that that could could be just around the corner really for us um we've got we where i live locally here we've got a a bird called Weka at carrying capacity in our local region up here so that could be on the cards you know there's other areas in in new zealand where we do hunt wicker and we can hunt wicker and there's um we harvest our do you guys have mutton birds i know they harvest mutton birds over in tasmania yeah tassie we've got
0: we get them below yeah we in every now and again we'll get a storm where they'll they'll get get lost and we'll get them off of the the coast of south australia but yeah they're not common down here but they do harvest them there is some type of harvesting forum
1: we harvest them too my wife's got harvesting rights down on, on rakiura there and um they're just delicious and they're a native species and that's just a part of how we we've grown up so i just see that as is a good thing you know the more people the more species we've got the better and i think the legislation's going to come along as long as we can grow those numbers you know
0: no that's awesome to hear like you do have your your duck hunting like your paradise ducks and all of that which is which is fantastic you know our duck hunting here in victoria and south australia is currently under threat um by greens i don't mean people that are conservation minded and you know want want well, a balanced, well well maintained ecosystem. By greens I mean like someone that doesn't want people to go out into nature. They they live in the city. They like to look at nature, but they don't want the how you actually manage it. They don't want controlled burns. They don't want um, you know, kangaroos numbers dropped and other native species dropped. These are people that nice like
1: too they still see people as separate from ecosystems.
0: Yes. Yes. That's exactly what our greens are like here. They, they, they don't want us to be a part of the, the ecosystem and the balance. They think that we should be completely separate.
1: Yeah. We've got, we've got that breed of human over here too. And, um, I guess I see that as part of my job, you know, in the social media space is to bring people along on that journey. You know, folks that are growing up in cities, we bring them out into the bush. We show them what we, we what, we've got vegans and, and vegetarians as part of our hunter-lead conservation project, the Eastern Fuel Link over here. We bring them out into the bush. They come trapping because they know it's a good thing for the ecosystem. And guess what? After a while, they understand, they may not partake in hunting. They may not eat meat. But they understand that hunters aren't bad folks, and I think that's part of my role as a human is is, is just, and a hunter is to bring these people gently along on the ride.
0: Yeah, you know? That's, Cause, that's awesome.
1: Because they're just there for their same ethical reasons, and I think most of us bloody hunt because we've got solid values as well, and most of the time they cross over somewhere. We've just got to find that place where they cross over, really, eh?
0: Well, that, that's the thing. You sit down and have a conversation with majority of these people, not all of them, but majority, you'll find places where you both agree and then you can break down the stuff that you don't agree on. And you know, you'll eventually um, work out some type of deal. Like, you know, having too many of this species is bad well yeah yeah it is and then you know you can work down those rabbit holes with them once you have a face-to-face not on social media being out in bush doing what you're doing is just fantastic so that's the best way to break down these these barriers i believe anyway
1: i'm a big fan of working on the on the on the stuff that we want to work on together and just let's part the stuff we don't yeah um you know we can get a lot done when we work on the same things that we want to work on together, and everyone sees things differently, so... That's it. I'm happy as to park that, eh?
0: So, jumping back a little bit, I know you briefly touched on it, how did you get into the hunting, fishing, outdoors lifestyle?
1: Um, I, my grandfather was a hunter, so um, he... Well, he hunted with a rifle and then hunted with a bow. He fished for trout. And so I kicked around with him as a young fella until I was 12. Um, We hunted pheasants, ducks, and he went off with his mates to hunt red deer, etc. And we fished a lot together, so both saltwater and freshwater. So I really got into hunting then, but he passed when I was 12, and um, my dad's a my dad's a really uh, keen tramper and so we did a lot of time in the bush as well with him and so I didn't really hunt again until I kind of found it myself later on and so but I did heaps of time in the bush with my dad um, but yeah I got a job for the department of conservation cutting tracks when I was 21 I think and I just kicked around with an old Hundred-year-old Lee Enfield that he um three oh three and uh, slung some air around uh, some lead around after work and uh, and ended up becoming a hunter. So um, it just for me we were paid so poorly working for the Department of Conservation that we get we literally in our weekends we lived in the backcountry huts in the bush because we couldn't afford rent and um, the cheapest way to feed ourselves was to catch trout out of the rivers and to shoot deer in the after work because if you had to buy meat it soon cut into your salary pretty quick so um yeah that's kind of been my journey working for doc and uh and feeding ourselves in the bush and there's there's no fridge obviously in the bush so if you're shooting one or two deer a week you're doing pretty well
0: no that's awesome so Another thing I want to touch on, your bush knowledge of just everything in the bush is insane. Um, how did you learn about all the plant species, edible and everything? Because your knowledge seems to be just outstanding.
1: Oh, I don't know if it's, you know, we all, oh, I don't know. I'm just a bushman, man. Like, I don't know. There's so many more people that know way more than I do in the scrub, but... Um, when I was 12, they, my dad started, um, you know, there's a time in, in your, when, you're, when you're a young person that your dad is is an absolute legend. He's, he's the absolute, like, dumb man for much of your childhood. Yeah. And then you become a teenager and for some weird thing in our testosterone levels or something happens and we're like, I'm ready for another mentor. And so my dad saw that. And he um, sent me bush into Te Uruweta with this guy, Darren Peters. And he is, he's a big bugger, eh? Like, he's a proper hard-out trapper. And so um, he sent me into the bush, uh, into Te Uruweta. And in Te Uruweta, these were there were these incredible old-school trappers. This one guy by the name of Keith, he was 70 years old, didn't wear shoes, walked around with a machete, didn't take lunch with him on the hill, and said to me when I was 12, he's like, you know, if we look after the bush around us, it looks after us. When you're ready for a drink, it'll give you a stream, and when you're hungry, it will feed you. And so he taught me, well, he he, he gave me a spark and sort of taught me a few things about what we could and couldn't eat in the bush, And that was, and that's where I really picked up that interest. And then later on, Um, when I was doing back-to-back 10-day trips, it really became important to know what food there was because when you're sort of in the bush for a month, you get sick of eating canned vegetables. So it really stimulated me to want to learn more and more of our, um, our forageable species over here and also more and more of the species that can heal us out of the bush because you know when you're sort of 10 days on your own got no one around you're kind of self-reliant because you know the helicopter's still going to be two hours away and if the if the shit hits the fan so um yeah i was just got into hunting that whole thing of like hunting and fishing to provide meat and then eating as much um fruit and vegetables from the bush that we could forage as possible just seemed to be the way to fit we didn't you know, you go to the supermarket and it just feels naff going to the supermarket and buying a whole bunch of fruit and vegetables. When you're flying into the bush and the bush, when you take your blinkers off and actually start to understand who our trees are and their relationship to us and our relationship to them, it seemed crazy to be flying in food, fresh food, when the bush has it all there waiting for you.
0: No, that's that's a great way to put it. I don't I don't know if it's the people that I've hung out with in New Zealand but Kiwis seem to have a better understanding of what they can and can't eat and just the understanding of the plants compared to Australian hunters like Australian hunters don't like they go out they shoot the animal they come back they don't really seem to know what they can and can't eat for the most part there is a few but it it seems that kiwis have a um much better understanding of what's around them in the bush while they're out hunting
1: maybe eh. and i don't know why that is is it a thing around how um how intermingled our our indigenous cultures is i'm not sure is it um because we uh spend you know do you guys have like a do, do Australian hunters go in and hunt for seven days at a time in the bush or do they kind of like go for day trips or what does that look like? Because I know for us here, we're often in the bush for long periods of time.
0: Yeah, see, you're, you're talking about 10-day stints, you know. There's not really that in Australia. You can do it in parts, you know. You've got um, all through Victoria, you've got public land, um, especially through the high country over there where you could do it if you wanted to but it's not like getting chopped into a spot and you know waiting there like hunting there for 10 days having everything with you fully self sufficient it's normally you know you drive to a spot you hike you hike in for a day or two you go back to the car you go back out you go get a pub meal or something like that, and then you, you know, you head back out bush and do it like that. Or you're hunting property where you've got, you know, your car right there. You've got fridge, you've got power, for the most part. So you've got, you know, food, or you're staying at huts or on on a property that type of thing. It's not. We don't really have like Australia is vast and rugged, but it's not. Like from what I've found about New Zealand, it's just New Zealand's a completely different place. It's it's hard. It's it it doesn't look as nasty when you're looking at it th- from photos. Like it it doesn't like everything over there is spiky, especially on the South Island. Everything freaking sticks, you man. Like it it doesn't seem that bad over here compared to over there.
1: So really, because I. I feel like we, we kind of grow up thinking that like everything in Australia is trying to kill you. So that's like on the animal space, but is that not replicated in the plant space?
0: Not, not like the only real spiky shit that I can think of is all introduced it, right. blackberries fir bushes, you know, it's not, it's not like the and um, the Spaniards and all of that shit. Yeah, all of yeah. that's just fucking horrible. Like, I I come out of the hills and I come back home and I was still popping bits of splinter out of my legs and my arms and my stomach. Um, You know, you've got some reeds that are a bit spiky and stuff like that, but it's just nowhere near as rugged as NZ. Like, it's... You can see, like, hunting that country, you can see why New Zealand hunters are as rugged and just full-on as you are over there is because the country is just harsh. It's, it's insane. Like even chasing yes. Se- seeker on the North Island, like everything was wet and slippery and cold, you know, it was, everything was mossy. So you'd go to grab a branch when you were like slipping and you, the branch would just crumble in your hand. Cause it's all, all rotten underneath it. Like, it's just a completely different, different place to over here.
1: And I think I'll just curl up and die in Australia, you know? Like, there's places over there that look so dry and inhospitable that I just – it makes me (laughs) super nervous. Because you know how I said, like, when I grew up in the scrub, like, you won't carry water because you just – you know, the stream's going to come to you when you're thirsty. It does not look like that over there. And, you know, when I look at it over there, I'm like, you know, the bush tends to feed us over here whenever we're hungry. And I'm like – you know, from from the little bit of time I've done, um, you know, in Aussie, I'm like, gee, I wouldn't know the first place to start where to find a feed in this place, you know? It looks pretty inhospitable from what I can tell. But that might be because I don't know it and I don't have a relationship with it, you know?
0: Yeah, there's there's that. And like I was saying, Australians don't seem to have, like, the relationship with the land like you guys do over there and with the food. Um, you know, there's bits and pieces I can point out. There is guys that have a very good understanding of what you can and can't eat. Um, but you know, not it's not inbuilt in a lot of hunters like it is over there. Um, you know, you're you're heading out to those dry places. You have to take all your water out with you. You know, and judge because you can't just rock up to a stream and drink straight out the stream. Like when I was going over for seeker the first time, I'm like, oh what do I need to bring? Do I need to bring like life straws and filters and, you know, all of that stuff to, to clean the water before I drink it, you know? And my mate's just laughing at me. He's like, no, no. You're like, we just rock up to a stream. You fill your bladder up and just drink straight out of the stream.
1: Is that not the case in not?
0: Not really. No. Like you've got the high country where if you've got decent runoffs, yes, but you got to worry about parasites and all of that type of stuff. Right
1: is it just slower moving through larger catchments
0: slower moving you know not it's you know especially now that we've got all the helicopter culling and all of that you know you don't know what's further upstream so you have to be worried about rotting stuff in the waterways and um but yeah you can get all sorts of different nasty parasites where you'll be be firing both ends for your whole trip if you you don't yeah it doesn't
1: sound fun no the the worst the worst thing I found over there was um, we, we were living out a Van over there for a while up in the mountains and that and um, going for a swim and just getting covered in leeches or like you'd go um, play a bit of like cuddling with the missus in the bush there and you'd come out that covered in leeches, you know what I mean? And <laughs> far out, you got some leeches over there.
0: See, we in South Australia where I am, we don't have the leeches. We don't have the ticks, right. you know, that's that whole East Coast up, you know, the east coast of Victoria and New South Wales, that's where you get all those all those nasty pricks. Um, and I never really have had much to do with that apart from my one time over there samba hunting and my one time over there chasing hog deer on um, Snake Island. And it's just, right. yeah, completely different. But, yeah, even like Snake Island, was a little sandy island off the coast, we had to take all our water over there with us and food and, you know, it was just completely
1: different. That's a whole other mentality, which is which is incredible, you know, because that would take a whole lot of more skills than probably we need over here because the land probably looks after us a little bit more.
0: Oh, it, it definitely does, and that's what I've said to people. Like, preparing to do this hog deer ballot on Snake Island that I drew at the start of the year, I, it, there was more planning and technical stuff that went into planning that hunt than it was to plan a hunt to New Zealand. Like, it was pretty much, like... Contact my mate. Yep, no worries. Picked me up from the airport at this time. drove drove to the shop, grabbed some basics, and went straight out bush. You know, where over there is just yeah, complete, completely different planning.
1: Yeah, for sure, we got it easy, eh?
0: Oh, it's it's insane, and just you know, being able to drive up to the public land, you can, and you know, walk walk a little bit in and find a tar or find a red, or you know, it's crazy. And the country that tar is tara in are just insane as well
1: yeah she's pretty steep eh? she's pretty steep but that's what we love about it too at least we've got the numbers to make it worthwhile
0: yeah it's also the altitude because we don't have the altitude down here so like going over there from going from over here where we've got no altitude to over there where you you know we'll camped at higher higher peaks than we have here in south aussie you know, <laughs> like that was our base camp in the creek, was was higher yeah, than, yeah. than out. You know, so just dealing with the altitude over there is just insane too.
1: Do you notice it, fell? Because that's interesting. Because we're just in and out of helicopters all the time up into the mountains, and I I don't notice it. But like, is that a is that a thing for someone that like if you're not dealing with altitude regularly, do you have to deal with that in our mountains?
0: It's either that or I'm really really un, unfit. So. I don't think that's the case. <laughs> yeah, no. Nah, Amazing. I, I, I feel it quite a bit. Um, I reckon it's a little bit of being unfit as well, but, yeah, that, I, like h- hunting with the Americans and the, the New Zealander, um, you know, both of those Americans were used to hunting Colorado and stuff like that, so they, they were used to that altitude where I just couldn't keep up with them. Like I'm just, you know, a few steps. <sighs> <sighs>
1: I went for a um, raw mission two years ago down in the Remarkables at, with two two hunting mates, and neither of them have kids, and I just got my ass served to me eh? Like I had, we we're carrying you know thirty kg, forty kg packs um, at the start of the trip, and I I spewed twice on the first hill. It was no good, eh? And um, <laughs> I've been I've been solidly working on my dad bod the last couple of years. And my fitness is nowhere near it should be, but you know, I haven't noticed the altitude. I've just noticed my legs turn to jelly, and I have to have a couple of spews before I get going.
0: You just need to take an Aussie with you. It'll make you feel good.
1: <laughs> I don't know. I'm keen to jack up a hunt. If you are, I've got a couple of things I want to do over there as well. I really like to um to have you. Have you met Alex, um the wild wild bushman over there? I haven't met him but
0: I've, I've been told to to get him on so he's he's on the list eventually as well. So
1: He's got a bit of knowledge around that bush tucker over there and I'd love to do a bit of time with that fella in the scrub because he just, he, I'd love to trap yabbies because we've got freshwater crayfish over here. I'd like to just compare our cultural um, way of doing things. And compare our bush knowledge. So I'd love to love to sit down with that fella and, and 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 spend a bit of time in the scrub. I also would love to get over there and 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 have a crack at a scrub ball. I know like that's like bottom of most people's list, but for, for me that's like that and uh, and your freshwater crayfish. Um, they look pretty tasty, eh?
0: Our freshwater craze or our yabbies. So we've got a few different species.
1: Really? Yeah. We've just got one.
0: Yeah, no, so we've got I think there's like four or five different species of yabbies um and they've been you know working out the subspecies of them um then we've got freshwater craze, then we've got um marin, red claw and a couple of other other Are ones Are you as taking well. the purse? No, nah, we've 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 got a decent decent number of freshwater craze and yabbies and
1: Is it- and do they all live in the same area? Like, are you saying no. that I could come over there and we could, like, just, like, have a massive boil up of lots of different species of freshwater crayfish?
0: Some bits you can, some places you can, some places you can't. So, you know, uh, Kangaroo Island over here in South Australia is a good example. You can get yabbies and you can get marin, which are introduced from Western Australia. Um, so you can mm-hmm. put one pot out and get two or three different types you might get two different types of yabbies and the marin. Or, you know, you go into New South Wales and Victoria where they have those big freshwater crayfish, Yum. especially when they have the season on for them, you might get...
1: Because how big are your freshwater crayfish?
0: The I've never actually had the the freshwater crays. I've never seen one in the wild, but they can... I think they get, you know, relatively big.
1: So, like, our the biggest our crayfish will get over here, our freshwater ones, they're probably like, you know, like a three, 330 light stubby can? Yeah. So they're probably, uh, the biggest they get is like as long as one of those.
0: So, yeah, a big, a big yabby would get, you know, probably a bit bigger than that, you know, fully stretched out from claw to tail. And then I think the marin, you know, they get, you know, some of them get, you know, a liter Coke bottle size. Um, no way. Not, not thickness, but length.
1: I've got to come to Aussie fella. That's <laughs> what i If nah, bugger hunting over there. I just want to come catch crayfish. That sounds fun as.
0: And then we also have shrimp as well. Freshwater shrimp. I'm not sure if you get the, get them, but I, I use them quite a bit for nah. fishing, but you can cook them up and, you know, you know, the little pink prawns that you get in, you know, Chinese food. They're, yeah. They're pretty yeah. much like a freshwater equivalent to them. Um,
1: See, our, our shrimp are like tiny. They're like definitely not worth your effort yeah. over here. We got we've got shrimp, but they're just like waste of time. Small.
0: Oh, you know some some of the ones you get, you know, you get. I'm showing you in the in the camera, so listeners can't actually hear. But you know, you stretch your finger, your thumb and your index finger out, and a big shrimp's about that that long including the claws. And are
1: they, are they sweet and succulent? You know, like our freshwater crayfish over here, they're like sweet and yeah, succulent.
0: Yeah, so the, the yabbies and the red claw and like the marron and stuff, they are... I haven't tried the actual freshwater spiny crayfish that um, the, the Victoria and New South Wales and Queensland and that get. Um, but yeah, I think there's a couple of species of those freshwater spiny crayfish and then few species of yabbies, the Marin, red claw and then you get up in the top end you get like cherubin which are like a massive prawn, freshwater prawn.
1: I need to do a trip I think, fella. Oh, uh, it's cool. Uh, we've got you, some, we've got some what?
0: cool stuff, man. Um, you know, you got all the you know the common um aboriginal bush food you know witchy grub bardi grub that type of stuff um you know there's a few berries and stuff that i can point out but you know you find someone that's got a good knowledge of the bush they can they can find some good stuff
1: oh well, that's that's what i'd love to do do a mission like that and maybe even take up off, off a scrub ball at the same time i'd be in heaven
0: well yeah if you went up to the top end you could do scrub ball and Cherubin, but barramundi fishing all of that type of stuff but you know people forget how big australia is and how much different terrain we have like you know south australia we've got the adelaide hills which is you know um relatively wet through winter and that um you know relatively hilly but nothing compared to new zealand and then it's the rest of it's just flat desert almost you know you got the flinders ranges which is an awesome bit of country but then you go into victoria and you get snow um but i've done it
1: i've done a bit of time uh in behind cairns and in behind brisbane and in behind melbourne um, in the in the hills behind there, and it's all been pretty sort of lush, and then some other areas are like forested desert land, you know, and that's quite diverse, which is cool. But it strikes me that New Zealand's probably only the size of your guys' east coast, anyway. Yeah. So there's a lot more to explore.
0: Yeah, working out how new, how like you can drive from the top of the North Island, then catch the ferry across to the South Island, then drive down to the bottom island like the bottom of the island like it doesn't take that long compared to you know like to drive out of my state i drive one one way and it's like 11 or 12 hours it's probably eight or nine hours driving straight up and then four hours to drive to victoria
1: <laughs> see for, for us it's probably what it's probably two 10 hour days and you've covered the whole country
0: yeah that's that's nuts i think what is it i've i've think it's about 18 hours to 18, 19 hours to get to about Bathurst, which is still four hours out of Sydney. So you're looking at about 24 hours just to drive from Adelaide to Sydney.
1: Yeah. That's a lot of diversity and landscape.
0: <laughs> eh? Oh, it's, 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 in, it's insane. And explaining to, a uh, you know, Americans, like I tell them to look at a map of America and then look at a map of Australia and then tell them to put the two together. And that's, Australia is the same size as America. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, we have some insane hunting and fishing. I'd I'd recommend Samba. Go chase Samba in Victoria, in the high country. There. Okay. You, you like being out bush. You like trout fishing. Um, you got some bush tucker out there.
1: Yeah, I'd be quite keen on that, eh? There... That'd be a good lot for sure.
0: And some of the... Yeah, I'd... The knowledge that some of those samba hunters have especially the hounds crews the knowledge that they yeah. have on samba are just incredible from what i can understand i haven't spent too much time on them but yeah they're a, they're they're there's our a, equivalent of seeker
1: there's a fella um over there robert herbert Yeah, uh, he's a knife maker eh? and and he's a real beautiful human eh? i would be quite keen to spend some time with that man because he he strikes me as someone that perfects his craft um, so I'd be quite keen to come have a nosy at those. And he gets into a Samba, you know, so I'd be quite keen to have a nosy. Samba over here are kind of like people go, oh, is, you got fallow, you got reds, and then you, know, you got bloody Samba. You know, like that, they reckon they're not as good eating. I've eaten Samba a little bit. I, I don't know. fellow's a bit more tender. But um, I, I'd be keen to learn what Samba are like in Australia, especially that hound culture just seems seems like a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, I I've, I think deer species taste depending on where they are. Um, you know, the fallow that I've had in New Zealand has been incredible, where fallow over here is like a medium-rated rated one, you know. Some people rate fallow better than red. Some people rate reds better than fallow. Samba tend to be one of the better-eating species over here that people tend to prefer. Um,
1: oh, that's fascinating.
0: I think it's from what I've worked out from doing this podcast and chatting to other people, um, it's the get, I hate using the word, but the gaminess, like the rich venison flavor reds and fallow tend to be more flavorsome where Samba hog deer chittle, they tend to be quite. They don't have a strong venison taste. So people tend to like them because they have that very mild flavor like hog deer have almost no flavor at all. Like I could give it to you and you wouldn't know it's deer because it's so almost bland in flavor. But that hog deer's tend to be the highest rated eating deer in Australia. Right. Where, you know, fallow and reds can be pretty pretty rich in flavor. And I like that. I love I love reds. I love fallow because I like how rich they are in flavor, you know. <laughs>
1: It makes sense. It makes sense. I think people are pretty boring over here in their palate, for sure. And so the fellow tend to be a lot fattier over here because um, they're eating a lot of grass and, and, and quite bland in flavor, as, as, as you're kind of talking about. But, but yeah, the reds have definitely got a bit of flavor over here. Um, but, yeah, it is what it is.
0: Yeah, that's that's something that surprised me when I was hunting with Jürgen, he's like, oh, I don't really like rabbit. You know, he's like, I'm not a massive, like, I don't really like eating tar. And, you know, he's like, I don't know too many people that like eating tar that much. You know, people tend to prefer venison over tar. And then we, I cooked up a bunch of rabbit for him. I made um, Kentucky fried rabbit um, nuggets. And he's like, oh, this is how I'm eating rabbit all the time now. He's like, I've never had rabbit so good. And then same with the tar, I cooked up a bunch and he's like, I've really been underestimating tar and how to cook it and prepare it. He's like, this is actually really, really good.
1: (laughs) And I think choosing your animal too goes a long way, you know. I've eaten a fair chunk of rabbit and a lot of folks aren't too picky on which rabbit they eat, you know. I always tend to try and shoot the young young ones or the female ones and, um, you know, those old bucks, of course, are going to be pretty tough chewing and I think it's the same for tar, you know. You shoot a nice young nanny, of course it's gonna taste I've eaten a few nanny he roasts and they're pretty good.
0: Oh the nanny I shot was incredible. The ball was, you know, a little chewy, but yeah, the nanny was just
1: next level. So, Not bad for a goat, eh?
0: Oh, they're they're incredible. Um, you know, I got I got mates that just call them a glorified goat. I'm like, you're dreaming, you know, how many Australians would love to have them running around at their footsteps. <laughs>
1: Don't do it. You don't need any more of any introduced species.
0: Oh, it's it's a hard one, man. I I, I love them all. You know, I, I it's it's a hard battle between conservation and um yeah, <laughs> and having having a love for the animal and being able to hunt him. But we'll get on to a couple more questions. Um, what's your top beginner tip for getting into hunting in the outdoors?
1: Ah. Uh... I got two. One's just about reps, starting somewhere where you've got ample opportunity, because I figure the more opportunities we get to stuff up, the better um, the better hunters we become quicker. And so, oftentimes, I will encourage our young hunters to get their first kill as quickly as possible, and then put the rifle down and hunt with a hunt with a camera so that we can figure out how to get as close as possible and what a deer does once they spook etc so oftentimes we we put so much pressure on ourselves um around getting our first deer we like to get that done first and then we can slow back down and um and really get as many repetitions on on hunting as possible somewhere where i've got no issue with starting young people on farms because i think the more reps they get on animals the better and then they're going to be great in the bush afterwards. Um, whereas if sometimes if we start people in the bush and they, you know, seeing one animal a day or two animals a day and they're stuffing that one or two animals up, they sometimes aren't getting enough repetition to, to, um, to become good fast. And I think, yeah, creating as many opportunities as possible. I think that's, that's, that's probably one tip. Um, obviously not everyone's got that access, but, um, my second tip is really on this, just coming back, back to understanding ecosystems. So understanding what is palatable where at what time of year. Yeah, because in the bush, and it's the same, because deer eat the same foods we do. So when we understand our bush také, our maki kai species, and where we can get a feed from, then we understand where the deer is going to be because we're going to the same places to get a feed as the deer is. And by taking the hinds out of the system, it actually creates more food opportunity for us as well. So it's about understanding our ecosystems. And the more we can understand those palatable species to us, we're so motivated through our puku, right? So if we can understand um, the plants around us, we understand what is fresh when, what's um, budding up when what's got new shoots when and the deer are going to be in that 20 meter radius every time so if we can understand our plants we're understanding our deer
0: that's yeah that's really interesting i've never never thought of it like that you know we again we don't have the same relationship to the bushes as you guys have um but yeah no that's that's really really interesting and I'm I'm here trying to think what, you know, a lot of the times, you know, deer are feeding on loosened paddocks over here and stuff like that. So it's not really stuff that we're going to be... Translates. Yeah, not... not Some of it does, for sure. Um, but, yeah, I'm just trying to think of this similar type of... You know, you've got your browsing deer species and then you've got your grazing deer species. Um, you know, in my area, it seems to be most of them are a grazing deer species. So it's mainly yeah, yeah. grasses and stuff like that. But no, that's definitely a cool bit of bit of information to, to definitely think about. I know in the last couple of years, I've been leaning towards more the foraging side of stuff and understanding mushrooms and stuff like that because here in South Australia, we've got an awesome array of different edible mushrooms over here. So I've been, you know, trying bits and pieces, um, shaggy mane witch hats or... or some ink in caps um, over here you know i've tried some of them i've tried a couple of different
1: they're them quite flavoursome too hey eh? they are they're not bad
0: they're, they're good they're good i preferred them more than the puff balls i i tried a bit of i made some puff balls and some past like creamy cheesy garlic puff balls I, it's too much like tofu for my liking <laughs> yeah but yeah, yeah we yeah. have we have some great like there's you know the area over here that gets hit pretty hard every year when the Pacinis pop up, and um, you know we've got a tough species of morel which I'm I'm slowly trying to narrow down and work out to try and find out. Um, but yeah, those those mushroom species there's there's lots of them around here. But everywhere you'll find most of those mushroom species in deer area, there will be deer in that area. That's right,
1: um, and they're usually the most productive species spaces eh? it doesn't it, you know things grow in this in the warmer sunnier uh higher productivity soil spaces
0: exactly exactly that's for sure so what have you forgotten on a hunting trip or in one of your expeditions what's what's a keen like a key bit of gear that you've forgotten and gone oh fuck?
1: <laughs> my my bolt all the time man i've forgotten my bolt so many times it's just embarrassing (laughs) like i would have i would have you know i could i could it'd be it'd be five or six times i've forgotten my bolt and it's just a bad look but luckily like i've always got the camera with me and when i'm hunting with mates that's usually like if i do forget my bolt then i can always whiff out the camera and be designated cameraman so it's not the end of the world my goodness, it's bloody embarrassing, eh? Is that law
0: over there that you have to travel with a bolt out or what's the go there? Yep.
1: Yep. 100%. So your bolt needs to be locked in a separate, um, so pretty much locked in your glove box.
0: Okay, yep. See, it changes state to state here. In South Australia, we can travel with a bolt in the, in the firearm. So it's just something that here we're never gonna gonna forget but you know i've heard horror stories of guys traveling interstate from new south wales and that and yeah forgotten a bolt or misplacing a bolt because you have to keep it separate and that yeah that just scares the hell out of me thinking
1: or just like you know you set your truck up and then the mate's like no no we're going mine and your bolts left in your glove box at four o'clock in the morning you know it's like ah What a deck! That's right.
0: That's horrifying. That's horrifying. (laughs) What would be the most important item you take out with you on your adventures?
1: Most important item. I like wool. As simple as that. I like wool. I like woolen socks. I like a woolen beanie. I like my woolen black Bushman t-shirt. Just wool. I, if I'm in wool, hot or cold, I'm happy. You know, <laughs> um, I'm one of the, I'm skinny as I'm like six foot four. I'm like eighty five kgs, dripping wet. Uh, there's there's not a lot of not a lot of not not a lot of fat on me. So uh, keeping warm in wool is a hundred percent key to me.
0: Yeah, because that's one of the things about wool. It gets wet and you're still you're still warm. It's not like the synthetic stuff.
1: And it doesn't, you know, when you're working hard, it doesn't do that nasty, sticky, sweetie thing. Okay. It just kind of like, you know, when you're working hard in the heat, it kind of, it's made for animals to be able to breathe properly. So, like, it works well for us, too, I guess. So, you know, there's all you probably had a million people on there and and, and, and kind of had all the standards, standard answers, but, like, obviously a knife and, 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 and my rifle and my camera, all that sort of stuff. But, like, to me, the thing that makes me comfortable in the bush is, wool. Well,
0: that's that's a it's a definitely a unique answer one we haven't had on the podcast yet so I, I I definitely like it I run a lot of synthetic stuff and I've looked at getting wool stuff so you know I tend to get too hot I, I heat up very quick when I start walking um, in the bush and you know so it's hard for me to layer because I'm either too hot or and then chucking clothes on as soon as you stop glassing type thing so wool would probably be a good option for me to look at down the future for you know under layers
1: especially those for me like those like real light merino layers like they just feel good and on day 10 they still feel good you know yeah whereas yeah. like my synthetic layers are stinky and sticky by then
0: yeah that's that's it so yeah I, I hadn't yeah and that's the thing wall doesn't stink as much as the synthetic stuff either so that that's probably a good choice to go down um, for when I'm looking at doing more backpacking-type trips in that cooler, cooler weather. What about the most sketchy, dangerous thing that's happened to you when you've been out?
1: Bro, well, I've been shot at four times <laughs> um, and I've fallen off a bluff down in Fiordland and busted my ankle and had to walk out using my rifle as a crutch. Um, and that was like two days from help so that was probably that probably had the biggest repercussions you know like i'd followed this this little spur down and the deer tracks ran out you know like there's that saying deer don't go stupid places but people do yeah because the deer have all the time in the world to figure their routes out and so the deer tracks had run out and this old bushman said you know you you never go off the deer tracks because if the deer aren't going there there's a reason why and the deer tracks had run out and i was being headstrong and I carried on and I kept pushing down the spur and it got to this slippery rocky bluff and you know those sections where the moss is growing straight onto the rock and there's no roots or anything hanging this hanging the soil onto that rock and so I put pressure on with my feet onto the moss and the moss slid straight off the rock and set me hurtling over the edge and it was one of those drops where you kind of like you know when you do a cliff jump or something like that into the river and you've got that time you're like one yeah. two three splash and it wasn't a splash it was a one two three rock. smack straight onto rock hey eh? and um my ankle took the impact and i remember Doing the like pat all over thing and the look for blood and, and sticky outy bone and there wasn't any of that. And I was like, sweet, I know my ankle's busted, but there's nothing that's gonna like like kill me here. Yeah. So I was like, sweet, okay, I'm gonna use this adrenaline, and I use the adrenaline to just get down as far as I could down that um down that hill, found the river, did an hour's walk, still kind of tapering off on the adrenaline to the nearest hut parked up there in like a a wool again in a woolen bush shirt overnight and fjorland was bloody freezing and then the next day walked most of the way out until um, a, a helicopter could come and get me
0: that's nuts
1: so,
0: describe was at it being Sorry. shot at that's that's sketchy like that's something that you know not many hunters. He have to put up with is that just negligence people not identifying their targets or
1: so three of the times i've been shot at no two of the times i've been shot at has been during the raw yeah and i don't know this so this is just a se- supposition but um i am pretty sure that the people that um, fired those shots, uh, so I was wearing high-vis, which I don't wear anymore, um, so I was wearing orange high-vis, uh, and I'm pretty sure those people were what I wouldn't class as a hunter, rather a shooter, yeah. and I'm pretty sure that those folks probably went down for the raw every year, and that's about the end of their hunting that they did. Yeah. So I think there's a big difference between being a hunter and being kind of a weekend Warrior or something like yeah. that, you know what I mean? Um, and I think that the scariest thing was I heard it, I, both times I heard the bullet whistle past me real close. And you know when you hear it whistle past you, that that close and you kind of feel the pressure of it, you know it's coming for you. And so that scared the bejesus out of me. And both times I yelled out, both times I started singing, and both times I heard the person Rattle off through the crown fern, and I thought to myself, Shit, if if I had actually been hurt, that's a very cowardly thing to do.
0: Yeah, that's insane.
1: And I knew that if I had been hit, help wasn't going to come. So that was very confronting for me because um, I was working at the time trapping, so yeah. I wasn't hunting, I was trapping in high making a lot of noise. You know, it's kind of... I felt like I was doing everything I could do, like, in retrospect, to make sure I wasn't a deer. And I still got shot at, so... Yeah, so that was pretty scary.
0: That's one thing I got told over there, is that um, people are more likely to get shot in the raw when they're wearing Hunter's orange. Yeah. Because people just see the flasher orangey red and they think a, think a deer and that's why blue is so common over there. That's right. Which is, yeah, which, which blew me away because, you know, I've, I've getting brought into deer hunting. I've always, don't wear blue, don't wear blue, you know, deer see in, mm. in, in the UV spectrum. But if it's between getting shot at and, um, spooking a deer, you're going to go with spooking the deer every time. <laughs>
1: I think, like, to me, like, I'm – so I've got kids now. I've got two kids are a four-year-old and a one-year-old, and I have to come home now, you know? Yeah. It's kind of more important than when I didn't. And so I just manage the raw well differently now. Um, I need to know that where I'm going, I've got really limited chance of having someone else in that area. So just at the moment – i'm hunting private land or i'm hunting public land where i've got a really good relationship with a helicopter pilot and no one is going to get dropped in around me you know
0: yeah that's- and so
1: that's how i mitigate it because like no amount of hivers there's so many folks out there now that um you know a made once said the other day he's like he doesn't look for deer anymore he looks for people and if he sees a deer when he's thinking that's a person then that's the right way to go about it yeah and i think that's a real interesting way of thinking about it but yeah now there's a lot of folks out there now and there's a lot of folks hungry to prove themselves as great hunters and that makes them more inclined to pull the trigger i reckon but yeah i just try not to put myself in the firing line these days yeah not during the raw
0: that's insane and, and it's interesting what you said there about kids. I've got two kids. I've got eight and three. Um, and, yeah, the the reason why, like we talked about the, the Kia earlier, the reason I didn't push off into that valley is because I'm just like, oh, no, it's, it's a bit wet, bit too sketchy for me, so I'm going to hang back in camp. And, you know, those boys were, you know, early 20s um one of them 19 you know no, no wife and kids are girlfriends at home so you know they pushed off into the sketchy bit i'm just like yeah no nah, i got kids at home i'll I'll stay in this area and just chill here
1: <laughs> and i'm comfortable with that eh? and it sounds like you are too you yeah. know like I'm, you know i've got the things I'll, i i i've got my personal goals in my hunting lifetime but yep. um you know, the the goals of raising my kids proper and being around to provide for them as kind of trumps that, you know.
0: And being able to take them back out into those place, into those wild places as well. So,
1: <laughs> then that's right. Then
0: I'm going to be right. able to do it without you. What about the funniest thing that's happened to you while you've been out? The
1: funniest thing, eh? Gee, I don't know. What's the funniest thing that's happened? um i worked in the scrub with this fella called phil collins and he's not the phil collins you know <laughs> from the gorilla red you know uh he's a fella phil collins and he was just a comical genius like have you read barry crump at all
0: no nah, i'm not a reader man i'm dyslexic as that's why i do podcasts
1: <laughs> sweet ass right this very Barry Crumps, you know who he is. He's an, he's a Kiwi author. He writes a lot of like he wrote a lot of like great right. humorous comical um hunting literature. And Phil Collins can recite just about every bush poem you ever met. And every time you went in the scrub with that fella, he'd just stump you with like um a random one he came out with one day when there's a, a female present, he's like he looked at her like a man looks at a steep hill he's got to climb on a hot day. <laughs> She'd come to resemble nothing but a large amount of noise. And I just cracked up laughing because, eh? like, he just was full of quotables, you know? So, yeah, every day with that fella is just a good laugh. Um, I don't know if I've seen too much that, that – oh, actually, nah, I went hunting with this fella, Jimmy Jangs, and Jimmy Jangs, he bloody – We've been we've been stalking stags for like six days in like in the high country and t- talking about long shots and that and I'm a bush hunter from up here he's like oh I can shoot one at five hundred no worries and you know he proved us right but anyway it gets to day six he's keen to take home some venison and um, we. This bloody yearling comes down like within twenty meters of us, and Jimmy like settles down on his pack with his rifle, like the best set up shot you can ever have at twenty meters. You know, like you're not gonna miss. And old mate bloody shoots us, this yearling, and drops it. Oh, bloody good! We've got some camp meat, like, and it's like we've set up camp right there. Like yeah. it, this, this, this deer's just about walked into into our tents, you know, and um, he goes up there with his knife to bloody, bloody deal with the this deer. He turns up to this yearling, and he's knee shot the thing, through both its front knees. And the thing jumps up like a bloody rabbit and leaps into the air, and Jimmy Jangs is there with his knife, and this thing leaps into the air, and it starts bounding its way down this bloody hill. And it bounds its way down this hill, and every time it gets hung up in the tussock, Jimmy's that running down the hill with his knife that he out like a bloody pirate chasing this thing down. And every time he gets close, it leaps in the air like a bloody frog and tumbles his way down a bit further and gets hung up in the tussock. And just he does this, it probably took two minutes or something down this big old hill, <laughs> and then he hits the um. Then he and we're yelling at him, Mate, put away your knife because he's running down the through this tussock. Oh, we just think he's going to scorn himself with his knife and let he end himself as well instead of the deer. And this deer finally makes it into the creek down the bottom, and Jimmy cuts its throat, and the whole creek turns red, and it's just this like massively biblical bloody scene. And that was just, like, my mate Levi and I, I just, like, cracked up laughing because, like, from missing a shot that's 20 metres away and knee-shooting this thing and it turning into this absolute rigmarole of bloody jumping jack deer, it was just the weirdest scene you've <laughs> ever bloody seen. Uh, Probably doesn't sound funny thinking about it now, but it was it was very, after six days in the scrub, it, 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 it definitely uh, was a big moment.
0: There's those things that are in the bush that are funny at the time. Um, It's funny to me because I can imagine it happening and being, you know, if you weren't a hunter listening to it, you'd be like, what the fuck? That's not funny. That's crazy. But, you know, being a hunter myself and, you know, have had similar, similar experiences, you can see why that is, (laughs) that, that would be funny to watch.
1: And that's what made it more humorous is just like, it's, it was quite disgusting and yeah. like that's exactly what not what you want to do as far as animal ethics go. Like it was quite shocking and yeah. that's what made us bloody laugh was just like, holy shit, how, how bad can you stuff that up at 20 metres?
0: <laughs> yeah, like what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what about dream animals?
1: Oh, so my grandfather shot a 16-point red stag in the bush, like a proper, like the wildest genetics, too far away from a farm to have anything else. He shot a sixteen-point stag in the middle of our conservation project that we're running now. And the bush is so eaten out now. There's no way you you'd see a sixteen-pointer. But to me, I'm like far out. Imagine bringing that bush block back to a point where it can have because the genetics are still there. Yeah. So if I can bring the that that um. That forest back to a state of health that it can support a sixteen pointer, I would be absolutely stoked. So yeah, I've got a big read in my sights one day. Um, I'd love to nail a scrub bull in Aussie. Um, sounds like freshwater yabbies and crayfish are up there now. But um, and those, do you call them sh- like out What are they? Chittle. Shittle. Chittle. That sounds terrible. Chit. Chit. Chittle. 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 Chittle, oh yeah, that's a bit different, yeah. So Chittle, I just think they look really beautiful and I'd love one of their skins. And when I was in America, um, I helped a lot of guys hunt hunt bear and uh, blueberry fat black bear. It's been many years since I've had that and, uh, and bear skin is just so beautiful and the animals are just incredible. So I don't know when it will happen but i would like and i only want to take one but i've got a hankering for black bear that a blueberry fattened because yeah. that fat is something else hey eh? yeah that's definitely on my list i'm not in a hurry but i'll get there one day
0: that's awesome yeah black bear would be probably one of the most common answers for top dream animals for aussies and kiwis going over the podcast and the common theme there is the blueberry fat black bears <laughs> everyone's seen that steve ranela clip and it's just got something stuck in with um australian and new zealand hunters
1: is because he did, is that that one in alaska No, so
0: it's one of the earlier episodes in in the... It could be Alaska, it might have been in the States, but it was one of either in the original first season or the second season, he shoots a black bear that's tearing away at these blueberries and cuts it it open and you can see, like, the bluey purpley tinge in the fat and then he cuts the fat, boils it, renders it down and then just does cubes of black bear and boils it in that fat and that's just something that's stuck into every australian hunter's head when it comes to black bears and it seems to be a very very common answer these days
1: i was living up in the Appalachians in the log cabin there for a while yeah and and we ate a lot of blueberry fat black bear um and cooked our spuds in it and it was just such it was just how what we used to cook just like olive oil and i haven't been able to scratch that itch since you know
0: yeah, I've had black bear jerky, but it's just not what like it was really good, but it's not what you know, like speaking to Americans that you know eat it religiously, like they're like think the best, the best beef roast you've ever had, but better.
1: I I I um, so to me, it's like the flavor of lamb with the texture of beef.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah that would be. Yeah, it's it's black bear's very, very high on my list. And more so for the eating aspect than the hunting aspect will be killer, but yeah, the the eating aspect, like
1: So I don't know if I can do the hunting aspect. I'd like to, but like man, I when I was in the States I used to like sleep in the like there was like these little hollow i used to kick, kick around the bush up there a, a lot in the Appalachians, and I, i'd find these little sunny hollows where the bears would sleep and you know they'd move on and i'd go and sleep in their hollow i was on some hippie kind of vibe or whatever but it felt cool at the time and um you know and there'd be like gliding squirrels hanging around and chipmunks and it was, it was cool man but like they move so much like humans and they act so much like humans that I reckon I'll really struggle with the hunting aspect of it. But the food aspect and the skin aspect is just so lush. Like, I don't know. I think I'd like to be in that position where I've got to make that decision on whether I pull the trigger or not. Based on my I want for those other things, yeah. because I really admire black bears. Eh? I think they're incredible creatures. So I want to kind of put myself in that position too, and just go, where do I sit on a hunter? Do I feel like taking this is more important than this this cool creature's life kind of thing? So because yeah. I don't feel that way about deer, like red deer, like I don't have that same. They're not as human, you know yeah. what I mean?
0: Apparently, seeing him scun and hanging hanging up is a pretty confronting sight because their muscle structure and their bone structure is very, very similar. So seeing them, their scum, there hanging, it's got a very human-esque look to them.
1: For sure, yeah. And we used to have them come down out of the scrub and, like, go through our pig pen and, like, eat the pig scraps and then come down and, like, itch their ass on our house (laughs) and it would make the whole house move and you'd chase them off and you'd have a conversation with them and they'd almost have a conversation back. Like, they're very... Um, interactive creatures too you know so it, it, they definitely have a have a presence
0: so i mentioned his name on here quite a bit but do you know who clay newcomb is
1: yeah i yeah, do yeah I so do. He,
0: he had a pod before he was at media they had a podcast called um bear, bear, Hunt, bear hunting magazine podcast yeah um, okay. so before bear grease um but yeah it was just got me very very like just the way he talks about black bears and hunting them and then the eating side of them and, you know, how the oil can be used to predict the weather and all of that stuff and how they use it with not just cooking meat, but, you know, doing all your pastries and stuff with the with the bear grease, which is just, yeah, cool to
1: hear. 100%. And I think, you know, I don't know. For me, there's a fascination to fascination is the wrong word but I think there's something really interesting with these animals that um, are highly regarded uh, by indigenous peoples um you know there's a whole other element of hunting there as well um, and to me it's like okay uh what where does that sit within the scope of of the indigenous peoples yeah. and is it my Right to come in as an outsider and take something from their ecosystem. I don't know either, so we'll figure it out. But yeah, <laughs> they definitely taste pretty bloody good. Uh, that's
0: awesome. It's it's good to hear that you um got to eat some. You're probably one of the first non-American guests that have that have has has eaten some black bear. That's for sure. <laughs> what about favorite thing to cook with hunted caught Game food.
1: Oh yeah, for me, there's like nothing better personally than like I love pickle pickle. Our um, our fresh fern shoots. Okay, yeah. I think that they're delicious. Um, so I like to fry some of them up. I might use kawa kawa fruit, which is um, a, it's a. Kawakawa has a, a melon-like um, fruit to it. It tastes like melon with a peppery aftertaste. So I like to mix the fat up from the animals that we kill and, and, and use kawakawa fruit to make a, a meat sauce. Um, and then I might sweeten it using uh, tootera or rimu fruit um, in that space as well, and so that can go really nicely. To me, it's less about the meat, but um, I might be doing back steaks or um, I might use that meat sauce in the middle of a pork back steak and then wrap it, um, you know, and, and and I like to cook over fire, cast iron in the bush with um, our pico pick native vegetables, uh, and those really sweet, delicious, uh, diverse flavours of the fruit that we have in the bush here. That's, to me, that's cooking. Eh? Um, that's my cool. wife struggles to get me in the kitchen here at home, but um, in the bush I come into my own.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's awesome. It definitely makes me want to you know, understand the um, environment over here a bit more and work out what, what's edible. And um, what I can use to flavour and spice the game that I shoot.
1: It's good fun, eh? That's that's what I froth on, eh? That's why I'm a hunter. That's that's what I love is putting all elements of our ecosystem together, if our ecosystem can provide it, and then trapping and doing the and hunting to do the work to allow our ecosystems to be able to sustain us, eh? Because I think oftentimes as hunters, we're at the taking end of the ecosystem my challenge to myself and to other hunters is that what do we need to do to give back to those ecosystems that allow us to eat from you know because life's not about a everything's a everything's a two-way street Uh, we can never take without giving something back and we can never give without taking and so to me that's what hunting is it's about um it's about being part of our ecosystem and a functional part of our ecosystem rather than just a consumer
0: that's definitely a great way to look at it and something that we all really need to look at you know yes we're taking from it um, you know introduced species so taking those introduced species away, away is a kind of giving back Somewhat, um, you know.
1: Well, I don't know if I agree with that. So if we if we look at population dynamics, and I'm sorry this will go on a bloody nerdy little tangent, but but if we look at population dynamics, typically if a species is at carrying capacity and we take what do you think? As a recreational hunter, maybe ten percent max out of a population? If we gave it 20%, we'd be being too generous. So as hunters in a recreational space, if we take 10% out of the population, it actually creates more food availability, which creates more stimulus and better condition to be able to grow more new animals. So you're actually increasing the number of deer that 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 ecosystem can support which means that we're not doing a conservation good. We're actually detracting from the conservation space as recreational hunters. Because I think oftentimes we think of ourselves as a bit like, oh yeah, we'll shoot a few hinds and we'll do a conservation work. You're probably taking less than 10% of the population, which is probably increasing the food availability and probably increasing the number of deer that that ecosystem is going to have in it. So I think we need to be real clear about that that hunting for recreation is not conservation. Yeah. And to do conservation as hunters we need to manage deer herds in a funded rigorous methodology that is about the ecosystem. It's not about going out yeah. out at the weekend and shooting two hinds.
0: Yeah, it's again between the two countries it's it's a little bit different. Um I can't remember the exact numbers but chatting to um Dan, who's a regular guest on this podcast, is a biologist and he's um, gone over a few studies, mainly Victoria because Victoria has the most studies on deer. Um, I think they're taking above 20, 20% of the uh, deer populations and I think it's yeah high mid to high 20s from memory um, where it needs to be around that. 30-ish percent and it's it keeps them at a capacity um, and they're actually doing... Yeah, they've, d- they've done the studies on it. I can't quote it exactly, but, yeah, it's recreational hunters are getting up there um, probably through the hound crews because they're putting a good dent in the numbers. Um, but, yeah, it's without... with us, you know, every, every animal that you're taking is giving our native animals a bit more of a chance because the mammals are competing because they eat very similar, they live in very similar environments, so kangaroos, wallabies, all of that, you know, so taking one of those introduced species away is giving a native
1: animal. It's the so, same. It's the yeah. same here. Our um, our deer eating the same species that our native birds yeah. eat, Um, our native birds will eat the new growth in the fruit it's the same here it the 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 numbers may be slightly different but i think the overall message that recreational hunters probably it's impossible for recreational hunters to do the job properly and that a recreational hunter taking a couple of animals is not going to make a difference
0: yeah definitely definitely i i definitely agree with you there but yeah there has been some studies that recreational hunters in victoria australia uh, get, getting up there you know and you know we've had all the stuff with helicopter culling and st- stuff like that poisoning and you know I'm not sure your views <laughs> views on that side but it can be a very touchy subject on both sides of the fence Um,
1: for, for me it's just around I, I'm not into poisoning at all I yeah. think that's um the flow on impacts of Poisoning, um, and also, you know, these are Taonga species um, to other Indigenous peoples and other ecosystems. And Taonga means a treasured species, of, like in our Te Reo Maori language. Um, taonga means treasured, and and it, you know, deer are treasured species yeah. to their home ecosystems and their home peoples. So I'm not a big fan of treating them with poison, but I am a big fan of using helicopters and other methods to bring them down a few notches so that we can manage them for the long term.
0: Is With the the helicopter culling over there, do they just shoot them and leave them? Or are they collecting some of it for whatever?
1: What we found is with the industry, um, you can do a bit of both. But at the end of the day, you do also need to make it economical and have the impact that you want to have. Um, it's the it's the carting time between the hills and the chiller trucks yep. that chews up all your time. So to make it economical in reality, we need to do shoot and leave to manage ecosystems, um, which again it turns a lot of people off. But we do have a lot of situations where, you know, the wafferty blocks they're dead got a burger out now that they're doing and and that with wild venison that's great um a lot of our farm blocks you know we've got the helicopter going through and then they'll gps them give us the gps coordinates and we'll go pick them up for people as well that's good um but you know in reality um yeah we do a lot of shoot and leave and i think that that's not a bad thing for our deer herds it's not a bad thing for our hunting opportunities And it's not a bad thing for the ecosystem. So, you know, once, if we're managing for trophy potential and fat deer rather than the number of deer, it's a win all round. It's just for those that are like, hey, I might miss out on a deer this one trip.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it is different because our deer numbers are completely different. Over here, they, their goal is eradication. So they're going through, they're shooting shooting and leaving as many deer as possible in South Australia. That's a
1: whole, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: They're, They're doing it with shotguns now, you know, three shotguns out the side of a helicopter and then a backup shooter with a rifle. And yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's pretty horrible. And they're doing it at peak time when people are hunting as well. So like during the rut, people will be out in paddocks over here in South Australia, stalking in on some reds or some fallow. And then the helicopter flies over the paddock, pushes them out into the national park and then shoots them right in front of people, you know,
1: whereas our governments learned that actually our hunters are really motivated to manage their deer herds, yep. So a lot of the deer herds that are being managed are being managed by hunter led conservation projects. Yeah,
0: and that's the way to do it. That's, that's definitely the way to do it where over here it's just wipe them out we don't want them um you know if if the deer are gone then we don't need need to give people r- r- licenses for hunting deer and
1: but to get, be in that space we need to be breeding a, a type of hunter that is ecosystem literate and that is articulate and soft enough yeah to be able to hold that space because if we're not front-footing it and creating our own projects and saying, hey, we're going to find the money to do it ourselves
0: yeah,
1: and we're going to do it ourselves and there's going to be this flow and effects, unless we're stepping into that space, it's really different. That's what we found over here anyway. And I'm not saying that it's it's the same over there because it you know, it sounds like it's a completely different kettle of fish, particularly politically. But for us, it's been a real journey to go, hey, how do we – create a type of hunter that is ecosystem literate that understands herd dynamics and biodiversity yeah and can walk that line you know because it's been a real shit we got a lot of people driving around here in utes and just blasting stuff out the window you know what i mean And and drinking while they're at it and it's like that's awesome good on you fellas but there it goes down like a cold cup of sick when we're talking about our social licence to hunt.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's the same here, and you get it everywhere, you know, the the, minor, the minority ruin it for everyone else. Um, but, yeah, I, I do like the idea of hunter-led conservation. That's, that's a really good idea and something that we should look at here for South Australia. But the thing here in South Australia, we don't have any public land to hunt, so all everything's managed by the parks um and yeah they don't want anything to do with hunters for that reason um so yeah it's a it's a such a rabbit hole you know people could I've chatted to um Robbie from Blood Origins about it and grabbed his perspective and a bunch of other people it's just so so very hard and such a touchy touchy subject <laughs>
1: Just come hunting over here, fella, oh,
0: you'll man. be fine. Oh, I love it over there, man. <laughs> I can't wait till my kids are old enough and I can I drag them over the ditch with me,
1: that's for sure. I'll bring them over. My young fella would love to kick around with them. <laughs>
0: it, it, it could be some good fun, that's for sure. But moving on, how do you see the public views on hunting and hunters?
1: Uh, very fluid. Very fluid. There's a, you know, I think the public views, the closer you get to a big city, the less they like us. It's the same with farmers, right? And the more we get into a rural space, um, we start to get closer to not being able to differentiate humans from hunters, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I think the public, I think the interesting thing is politically in New Zealand, the government and uh, opposition have both found that the it's really important to work with hunters so i think we're perceived as uh a very vocal and difficult group to to um to to boss around
0: that's good that's what it needs to be like here
1: (laughs) but i also think that that was once, like a few years ago, that was a very bossy, redneck space to be in. And what we're seeing now, and even within the Game Animal Council, is that they have started to um, appoint Indigenous peoples on their board because they realised that being an a affluent white leadership team was not going to get them very far. And the same with fishing, game is that they're they're having to, and they're going to continue to have to uh, start to come around a orientation to hunting politically that's around food and indigenous people rather than our uh, sorry, my Maori word slipping, um, <laughs> our affluent white um, predominant way of treating this as a recreational activity, because here in Aotearoa New Zealand that's not going to work politically for any of us yeah. and it's not going to work for our people. And so I think that's really interesting. So we're perceived, as soon as we go down the the white affluent space and the trophy hunting space, we are seen as a pack of dickheads. Yeah. yeah. And I think in my experience, that's not unfounded in many cases. <laughs> as soon as we're, we go down the... Um, route of food gathering and ecosystem literacy and the importance of traditional harvest that is much uh much more widely accepted and it is much more digestible to those that live in cities because it makes sense logically yeah and I think that's what, that's, that, that's the difference. When people see us in cities as people that are gathering food for our families in a way that's respectful to animals, they can stomach that. If they see us rolling around shooting something to take its antlers in its head, they can't stomach that. Yep. And, you know, for me, I've got my tro- trophy aspirations. I'm not saying I'm not a trophy hunter. But all I'm saying is, how are we perceived? Well, there's a big difference yeah, between yeah. how we hunt and how we're perceived. And yeah, that's 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 how I think we're perceived as hunters. Eh? We need to be really careful that um, we don't that we retain our authenticity, and we actually need to step into the spaces of protecting indigenous people uh, and and traditional hunting and food gathering, and we probably need to. Step away from those ideals of um, a acclimatization society, uh, affluent white person hunting. That's, I think that that time is is, is um is being being gone really.
0: Yeah, look, I'm, you covered the next question as well. I reckon you you're spot on and nailed that, and it's something that I've been thinking of quite a bit here you know majority of hunters here like i said with the bush food and stuff like that they don't really know it and then when it comes to the indigenous side of stuff it's even more further removed away from that type of stuff as well and then you know when it comes to the political parties the political parties tend to push the traditional side of stuff and then throw away The hunting side of stuff where you know hunters and indigenous people could really team up and do a load of good for the the environment and animal numbers and stuff like that so that's something where my mind's been tracking lately and you know i've been thinking of indigenous people to have on to have these conversations about all of that so i I definitely think that's that that's definitely the right path to move move towards
1: And I I just asked the question, why do we hunt? And if we're out there hunting because we like to shoot shit, well, that's a recreational activity. But most of us like to, we use the hunting to be out there in the bush because that's where we like to go for our mental health. If we provide food for our families as well, then that's a win. But we actually just like being out there. And so I think that's that's all it comes down to is like looking after the, if we go down the path of looking after the ecosystems that look after us, we're going to be hunting for years and years to come. But as soon as we get pushy around what we want to take, hey, it's not going to work.
0: Yeah, that's, I couldn't have put it better myself. That's, that's a great way to, to definitely look at it and approach it. Um, final question what is hunting to you?
1: (laughs) Feel like we just summed that up. Um, Hunting to me is just one part of the person I am and one part of um, the way I interact with our ecosystems. Um, Hunting to me is something that's been passed down through each side of my genealogy. Um, It's the way that our, it's a way that our family connects with the land that we are present in, and it's one vehicle to help us have a relationship with the land and water around us. Yeah, to me, that's what hunting is. It's just who I am. It's um, how I interact with our landscapes, and it's just one small part of providing food for our family in a way that keeps with and it keeps with the world rather than kind of works against it. If you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, no, that's that's and that's an awesome way to put it. And I, I, people are gonna get tired of me saying this, but it's my favourite question just to hear how everyone everyone puts it because I feel like I can relate to everybody's answer on how they put it, and it feels very very at home when they're speaking speaking about it. <laughs>
1: So, yeah, it's real. I love finding, it. I love listening to everyone else's perspectives, and um, there's, there's, and they're true no matter what they are.
0: Yeah, and just cool. just seeing the smile on your face while you're talking about it and describing it, and I've seen it with plenty of other hunters when I ask them that question. They all have that same smile on their face when they're they're just putting all the words together and what it means. And you know, the words might be different, but it's all the same to. To every every hunter that I've spoken to, so
1: that's right, that's right,
0: uh, that's awesome. So for those that have enjoyed everything that they've heard today, and those that might not follow you on social media, where can they find you?
1: Uh, in New Zealand, now um, <laughs> you can find me on the on the socials if you like. I'm on Facebook, um, Instagram, and TikTok, just as Sam the Trap Man. Um, I also I'm uh, involved in a, a pretty amazing hunter-led conservation project over here, the Eastern Fuel Link. So Eastern and then W-H-I-O, link, uh, L-I-N-K. And you can check them out on socials or ch- check that out just at, on our webpage as well. But, yeah, that's, that's where you can find me. Keep your eyes peeled a little bit. We're going to be dropping a little project I'm working on in written format um, next year. Awesome. But, yeah. That's where we're at. And otherwise, just come to New Zealand and come hunting.
0: Yes, yes. Well, I'll, I'll definitely get back over there. I'm not sure when, but I'll, I'll, I've got a few more trips planned over there in my lifetime
1: <laughs> bring the kids fella. yeah man. bring the kids
0: yeah my my little tacker he'll love it he can't wait you know we sat there watching meat all the new zealand hunt like meat eater episodes and i'm explaining to him everything and he's like i just want to be over there with you dad <laughs>
1: Good man. Good nah,
0: man. easy thank you very much for coming on and it's been an awesome chat
1: I appreciate your platform, Zach, and you're you're having some pretty incredible conversations, fella. So I appreciate what you're doing and feel very humbled to be invited on.
0: Thank you very much, mate. Um, I feel very humbled for you coming on. (laughs) Easy, mate. Have a good one. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Hunting Connection Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed our discussions and gained valuable insights into the world of hunting, fishing, and the outdoors. To stay connected with us and never miss out on an update, please be sure to follow us on social media, all at Hunting Connection Podcast. We appreciate your support and would love for you to share the podcast with your friends and family. Don't forget to tag us in your hunting photos on social media and let us know about your experiences. Your feedback is invaluable to us, so please take a moment to subscribe, rate and review the podcast. Together, we continue growing and delivering more captivating episodes for all hunting enthusiasts. Stay connected, stay informed, and keep pursuing your passion for the hunt. Until next time, happy hunting.